hello on uh, a significant and uh, auspicious day for uh, all lovers and haters of napoleon bonaparte <laughs> <laughs> the the eve of one of the greatest moments in cinema history is upon us as we await the release of ridley scott's movie napoleon i can barely contain my excitement and i know that the same will be true of many if not all of you the listeners to this podcast after whom that man who some people think is great is named um well hello anyway um and uh, it, it is relevant um as we record this on uh, october the 19th 2023 um uh, because october because, oh is it november the 19th i beg your pardon um uh, to correct me on that and many other things <laughs> <laughs> our, our usual uh, uh, historians, our, our panellists, uh, we've got um, Professor Alexander Mikabaridze um, of Louisiana State University, Shreveport, and Professor Emeritus Charles Esdale of the University of Liverpool. Um, both, I think, fall into the category of historian, which <laughs> some people think Shoot. is cool. Maybe some others not so so big fans of those losers who go around reading books and thinking they know what they're talking about. You guys make me sick. Are you telling us to get alive? <laughs> Absolutely, I am. No, wait, no, I'm not. I, I, uh, I actually have. You're forgetting that our life is exactly that: read, reading and digging in the past. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's so true. All, all I can say, all I can say is. Um, Mr. Scott, were you there? <laughs> oh no. Oh boy. So, what right have you got to, to pontificate? Well, You've just got more dollars than I have. Oh, I've kind of dived straight in here. We, we are going to be um, addressing some questions and comments that listeners have put forwards but seeing as we're so close to the release of this movie let's just keep keep going on that for a little bit as, a, as our sort of introductory section and um yeah just 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 a little bit more on that charles because the, the, to, to me the response to the point you've just made to, to defend ridley scott and his his comments um uh, about historians needing to you know to say were, were you there well he he's an artist ultimately he is entitled to present, I think, I think there's a four-letter word that you can stick in front of that with a hyphen. Oh, cine artist. No, no, <laughs> it doesn't begin with C. It begins with a with another consonant. A uh, film artist, maybe. But um, <laughs> no, a very, very rude word, well, which, um, which I won't insert on 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 over the air. Difficult. Well, I can see that that Charles, you're a bit bruised by this this all out attack on your integrity, character. It's it's brilliant um, from my point of view because because you do have a situation where um, you know the, the the rights of of a filmmaker to present a particular portrayal, he can do whatever the hell he likes. Um, it's, it's not so much um, when you when you're making a historical film. Clearly, you've got to elide. You know, if, if for the sake of argument, take take the movie Waterloo, which is something which you know we're all familiar with. Um, how do you tell the story of not just the Battle of Waterloo, but, but the Hundred Days? 
how do you do that in a in a two hour film? You have to elide, you have to compress, you have to simplify, um, and sometimes to help the plot along, you have to invent. Um, you know, if if you want to convey a particular situation, one way of doing it is through a fake conversation between Napoleon and Ney or whoever, um, and that and that helps the thing along and and actually to take uh, another battle battle movie with which i'm very familiar gettysburg um that that happens all the time in that i mean you get conversations which between lee and longstreet and longstreet and pickett and all the rest of it which i mean are pretty much made up but they they convey information and and the movie as a whole does a pretty good job of 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 operating within, if you like, the acceptable parameters. Um, Waterloo does that less, much less effectively, but it does actually stick within parameters. You know, it's recognisably the Battle of Waterloo. It's recognisably the Hundred Days. Um, I think Ridley Scott strays beyond that but well, i wouldn't i wouldn't mind so much i wouldn't mind so much if you would just be honest and say i i was trying to create an impression and when you're working with films that's really all you can do and 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 for example if you take the the, the scene where when 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 napoleon apparently bombards the pyramids um, that's actually a very, very neat one-line introduction to the idea that Napoleon kicks off French colonialism in North Africa. Um, so, I mean, there's much that I can accept, but it's where it's where Scott, frankly, strays into arrogance, frankly talks about things which he knows nothing about. And 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 frankly, it's just downright discourteous. Oh, he's definitely discourteous, Alex. So, what have your thoughts been um, on uh, Ridley Scott's somewhat provocative comments uh, against historians in the run-up to the release of this movie? <laughs> um, I mean, there's not much that I can I can really add to what uh, Charles said with regards to uh, Ridley Scott's commentary. I think it, it's pretty clear that he doesn't have a clue what historians actually do and how they do it. Um, and and it, uh, it you know it's it's sad because uh, I'm a big admirer of his movies and I really enjoyed watching his films. So um, I think without have you know, we haven't seen the movie yet. Um, so I'm, I'm going to see it on on Tuesday. Um, and I don't have high hopes, but I look forward to it. it it's the first major release on Napoleon in, uh, in two decades at least. So I, I, I certainly am um, excited about that. And and it's not, and I think you, you mentioned that, it, it's not that we are taking issue with the uh, art, artistic vision of it, uh, but rather what I think we're taking issue with is the way history is portrayed. I don't think anyone complained about Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards not being <laughs> right, histo right. historically accurate. 
because we understood it's alternative history. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? And uh, if, if anything, we probably, well, I think uh, we cheered uh, the way the movie ended. Um, it's the way I think movies like Napoleon play out is that on one hand, both studio and the director and, uh, and actors all want to emphasize the the attention to detail and the expense to which they went to recreate the past and uh, the trailer, the part that shows the coronation, it's it's impressive, right? The attention to clothing, to arrangements, to to all of this. Then you know, if if you go to that extent to recreate these kind of details, why not also pay attention to other aspects of history, yeah. like yeah, reenactment of battle, right? Austerlitz, the way it's presented in, in, in trailers, is, is a joke. Um, and and it's, it, it would not have been that difficult with all the resources that uh, Scott had to create a more coherent and more truthful, really, um, uh, account of the battle. So we'll see. Um, I'm, I'll look forward to Tuesday. I've been asked to write a review of the movie, and um, we'll see. Um, you know, I'm... I'm I'm, I'm keeping my uh, kind of mind open and try not to prejudge. Although those those comments, <laughs> those comments hurt. <laughs> oh, I bet. Okay, well, look, we've got um, we're going to gather together again next weekend, and I'll try to put out a Napoleonic quarterly festival of um, reacting to it um, a, a week tomorrow. So, so that'll be on the Monday. Um, yeah, I, for my part, I, now Bernie's going to um, take take on the role of presenting that that show um really frustratingly for me i don't think i've, I've so i've been you, you, regular listeners to this podcast will have heard me whinging about this long covid issue i think the way to describe it now it's sort of come back it let's let's call it migraines i don't think i can hack going to the cinema basically i, I don't think i can watch this movie on the, on the screen which is frustrating i've come up with my own alternative approach but it's going to have to wait until i can watch it uh at at home and if the rumors of a four and a half hour extended version are true then um <laughs> then my approach might might be even more convoluted and excited so anyway so that's just to explain what uh, so bernie will take that on i'm i'm looking forward to, to to that discussion absolutely so all of that was an extended introduction we had to address the uh um uh elephant in the room um, uh, and and so we have there we go at the start. But the point of Napoleonic cues uh, really is to is to give um, listeners the chance to put their questions to um, to our panelists to Charles and Alex. And um, I've got uh, a list of six various six topics, let's say here, um, which which we can look at. Um, before we go into that, though, let me just quickly run through the housekeeping. These these questions they come and comments have come through a, a range of um, ways you can reach us. The, the the big one is the email address. That's napoleonicquarterly at gmail dot com. Uh, napoleonicquarterly uh, at all one word or rather two words at gmail dot com. You could also send us messages or comments on our uh, X slash formerly Twitter handle napoleonic underscore q you can leave comments on spotify a few people have done that which is great um a few people have left left us a review on apple podcasts which is really great thank you very much for that 
um and there's a f- uh, we've got a facebook page as well search for napoleonic quarterly so a, a, a few options on on ways to feed in the other big thing today the other reason today is an an, uh, an important day is that uh, as bernie was pointing out in our little group chat we've got going what a great opportunity for um us to buy charles a bicorn hat one of napoleon's bicorn hats um it, it was going for sale today at an auction and um i, I did a quick check up of the patreon um funds unfortunately we haven't quite got enough to just blow it all on, on one of that so sadly we've had to pass up that opportunity however we might um have a special guest a mystery guest we'll see how things go um who might be popping up in the course of the next hour or so who might be able to shed some light on something related to that so i can see that both uh, Alex and Charles are uh, their curiosity is peaked. Uh, that's the right phrase. However, <laughs> what, 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 we'll, what we'll do now is we'll we will start off with um, the first of our six topics, and um, so six things, gentlemen, to to choose from. I, I should have just brought a dice, really, but Alex, why, why don't you choose? You you, you start. Uh, cho- please choose a number between one and six four four right okay so that is ah ah oh no i mean okay it's fine we're gonna start with this a- one. anything but four <laughs> this, is, this is my stupid fault well so that's okay is, alex just you choose <laughs> i'm gonna do, no no I'm, I'm gonna go with it um this was of this this relates to um the uh an individual called andy a, f- a former listener sadly of the podcast who listeners to the last Napoleonic Cues episode will recall had sent a fairly, fairly foul-mouthed rant at, uh, uh, targeting Charles, and we chewed it over, and I definitely got a bit carried away. Um, he he got in touch afterwards and and said that he wouldn't be listening anymore, and that and that I I ought not to have um, sort of you know made fun of him. And actually, the truth is, I do feel a bit bad about about making fun of him i just want so i've got a a follow-up correspondence from um uh uh, another of our listeners who i'll read out in a second but my my thoughts on it were that um we shouldn't write off an an individual solely because they have a bad day or or they basically they break the terms of engagement once we don't know whether Andy was going through a tough time or if he was just, you know, maybe um, he just wanted to perhaps break the normal rules of, of conduct, but, but, but as, as, as a one-off thing. Um, so, you know, I, I, he did apologize. And so I sort of maybe, maybe feel, felt a bit bad about then kind of making fun of him as he, as I, as I got a bit carried away. So, so anyway, there's that. So I actually want to say sorry to, to Andy for, for, for that, I, um, for, for, for getting carried away. However, um, putting that to one side, here's, here's a, an email from Russell Thornton, another listener from Dallas. Uh, Texas, I won't dare to do the accent, um, who writes as follows. Dear Mr. Stevenson, I wanted to address a listener's comments about Mr. Esdale read during your September 10th, 2023 episode. This dogmatic right-wrong thinking, as well as personal attacks, is what is wrong with much of society. 
Rarely is there one right answer to anything. With rare exceptions, Hitler, Stalin, and current persons in North, and North America, Eastern Europe, and Asia are people just plain bad. People, including historical figures, are human. This means they, like us, are flawed. There is good and there is bad. The important thing is to know, acknowledge, and accept both the good and the bad. Only then can we have an educated and constructive discussion about that person, whether it be Napoleon or Nelson or Wellington. Okay, that's the first of two paragraphs. So hang on in there, there's a bit more. We are all biased, brackets, an inclination of temperament or outlook, in quotes, close brackets. These biases come from our personal life experiences and feelings. Mr. Esdale does come off as very anti-Napoleon, but he discusses so much more. His thoughts and opinions are based on facts and well-articulated. By tuning him out, the listener misses the opportunity to actually learn something. Similarly, Mr. Mikabaridze's thoughts and opinions are based on facts and well-articulated. Brackets, I must add, I'm reading his book on Kuchisov and I'm enjoying it very much. Close brackets. Anyone tuning him out misses an opportunity to learn. That is what I enjoy about the show and any other civil discourse based on actual facts. Unfortunately, many do not want to listen and think anymore. They just want to be told that what they think is right. Thanks to all and keep up the great work. Russell Thornton from Dallas in Texas. So any thoughts on that really um, well um, expressed and gratefully received email? Charles, do you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, it's an argument I've had many times, um, particularly with regard to matters relating to the Peninsula War. Um, I've got up in Spain, uh, conference after conference, and I've said things that Spaniards do not like, uh, many Spaniards do not like. You know, I've called into question you know, the whole myth of the guerrilla movement. I've even said that the, the guerrilla movement was largely a myth. And, you know, that has gone down like the proverbial lead balloon. And, um, you know, I've had people very upset with me, very angry with me, um, you know, amongst other things, you know, you know, saying, well, you don't understand because you're English. People want their history comfortable. People want the same old bedtime stories. In the case of the Spaniards, they want to hear about the heroism of the Spanish guerrillas, for example. Um, in the case of, of many of the people in France who are, who are apparently getting very, very upset about, about um, Ridley Scott's version of Napoleon, um, you know, they, 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 want, they want Napoleon the Great. And, uh, and a, a certain author who was associated with that phrase is very, very angry about the film. I read his, his review in the Times today. People want their history to be safe, to be comforting. And that means they want to get what they understand is right. Um, and if you challenge that, and particularly if you challenge very cherished notions, of, of British greatness, of, of French greatness, of, of Russian greatness, to take to take a you know a, something which is very relevant at the moment. Um, you know, you, as a historian, you tend to get into trouble, and you know, in certain countries, you can get locked up. 
I very much welcome, though, um, this good gentleman's remarks about the need to see individuals in the round. Um, one thing that uh, Andrew Roberts got very, very het up about um, in his review of the film, which I've just read, his review of Napoleon, is that you know many, many British historians compare Napoleon to Hitler. And, and this is a travesty. And, and um, I can't quite remember if he suggests that Scott uh, compares Napoleon to Hitler. Um, no. <laughs> I mean, I would never, ever compare Napoleon to Hitler. I mean, it's a ridiculous comparison. Um, and I recognise that Napoleon was capable of great charm. That Napoleon was capable of great kindness. That Napoleon was a man of immense talent. Um, I think that he was in many ways a genius. The trouble is that he was a flawed genius. And and in my writing, I have actually I do actually try to take account of that. What I object to is people who simply regurgitate the myth and 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 regurgitate things which are simply untrue um like for example it was it was Ney's fault that the cavalry were thrown away at waterloo and so on and so forth so yes by all means let us see napoleon and indeed wellington and indeed nelson in the round but let's not succumb to myth and let's not be afraid of challenging myth. And, and above all, let us maintain a civilised, friendly level of discourse. That is, is why the gentleman who we were discussing just now, or you were discussing just now, that is why he had to be called out. That behaviour is unacceptable. And I wouldn't tolerate it if it was directed at Alex rather than me, or indeed British Alex, you rather than American Alex. It's his simple <laughs> not on yeah. and he had to be called out. Yeah, I developed rather a thick skin in the um, my twenties when I was writing all sorts of nonsense um, on, on politic on political issues, and you almost wanted to to provoke uh, a, a reaction. But this is this is different. This is this is serious. It's about actual history. Uh, Alex, any thoughts from you? No, I think uh, again, I, I share Charles's uh, view on this, and I really appreciate Russell's response. In fact, um, if he's, I hope he will be listening to this episode. He's only two and a half hours from me, so why don't uh, Russell get in the car, uh, drive over? I'll, I'll buy you a lunch, and I'll show you a great Napoleonic collection that we have at uh, Louisiana State University in Shreveport. Oh, and, there you and, go. And Amazing. If the gentleman wants to fly to the Isle of Man, <laughs> I, I, I will take him to see the wonderful coastal battery we have installed in the precincts of, of, of Peel Castle. Okay. Um, and, and, I, and I would buy him lunch in, in the very best place in town. I would be delighted to wow. meet him. <laughs> okay, this is how we're going to grow the podcast audience it's going to be by offering uh, offering these opportunities oh, that's tremendous okay thanks both that's that's the first of our topics uh, all sorted now then 
Um, I mentioned that we might have a surprise mystery guest coming on the show uh, just beforehand, related in some way or another to the auction that took place um, uh, earlier today, literally earlier today. And um, so, Liam, I, I know you're struggling to hear me, and I note that you're muted, so you'll have to unmute yourself. Oh, there you go. Well done. But um, I just want hi. to introduce. Hi, Liam. Liam, this is this hi. is Liam. Why don't you introduce? Yeah, good. Hello, Liam. It's great to, to see you. Hello. Um, why don't you introduce yourself to uh, to the listeners? So, um, well, um, my name is Liam Gauchi. Um, I am the director of the Malta Maritime Museum. Um, uh, I am also a historian by profession, um, and. Unfortunately, I'm I'm a, a bit obsessed uh, with the late 18th century Mediterranean, um, uh, and I'm here to share some 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 very interesting news, um, uh, especially for for Malta and the Maritime Museum um, uh, that comes fresh um, all the way from the auction that was happening in Paris. Now, just hold on there, there, Liam. Just, just for a second. It's just want to explain that um, Liam is going to be talking to Rachel Blackman Rogers. We're going to hear more from Liam about what was going on in uh, naval matters, particularly in that that area of the Mediterranean in the late 1790s, around 1800. So um, we we should have a bonus episode coming up. Um, in which um, we can sort of, you know, pick Liam's brain and hear from him about all the fascinating things going on. Um, but Liam, Liam had reached out to, to get involved in the podcast because, um, and it was so cool because the, what he, uh, when we sort of had our initial chat, he said, you know, it was it was virtual, but he said, let me show you something quickly, and and he he showed me that uh, he took me through into the workshop of the museum where there are a couple of guys working on th this piece of furniture and anyway he explained it was emma hamilton's bed go on liam yeah yeah first of all i'm i'm a huge fan of the show um uh, so so because it appeals to 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 my to my inner instincts of, of wanting to consume constantly um, uh, stuff that is related to the Napoleonic Wars. So, so, so um, it, it was something that, that um, honestly, I, I'm so happy to, to be on here, to be sharing some of these thoughts. And yes, we, we are, we consider the, the, let's say, the late 18th century and the early 19th century um, as part and integral of, of our Maltese identity as a nation and so we have so many artifacts and uh, i myself um i'm a bit biased but but i, I am pushing um uh, this narrative and also pushing towards um uh, bigger and better acquisitions um for the museum with regards to this period well and that hold on hold on a second okay oh, you didn't yeah. buy the hat did you <laughs> No, unfortunately, it has it had no Malta connection, and and no, my budget is not that big. Yeah, uh, I just want to uh, uh, double check because you were talking about new acquisitions, and I was I was getting excited here. No, but, but there's an acquisition. There's an acquisition with a Malta connection, and I'm very, very, very proud of it right now. You are the first people to know outside of of my my my, my colleagues from from the museum because I I, I am currently. Um, uh, well, technically, I, I'm I'm on 
holiday uh, for for three days in in Alba um, in Lombardia in Italy. And I actually was following the following the auction from an autostrada on my laptop, hoping that the connection <laughs> does not will, will will make it. Um, but I was I was celebrating on the autostrada, and if I may um, share, well, the the well, it is a presentation sword awarded to Admiral de Cray by Napoleon himself for awesome, his. Yeah bravery um, and for his his courage when commanding the Gulliam Tell, uh, which eventually became HMS Malta. So we all know the conclusion of this battle. Um, uh, the 80-gun ship, um, one of the survivors of Abukir, had been bottled up in Malta uh, for uh, nearly, nearly two years during the siege of Malta. And in, in 1800, in March 1800, um, the Maltese sentries um, who were in command on land were communicating with the blockading fleet under uh, um, Admiral Nelson um, uh, aboard HMS Fudriant that the Gulliam Tell, the last piece of the jigsaw, which was the destruction of the French Mediterranean fleet by Nelson himself, um, was trying to slip its moorings um, under the cover of darkness in Malta. Um, she slipped out. Uh, Fudreant, um, HMS Fudreant, HMS Lion, HMS Penelope, and two Neapolitan ships, uh, the Vincenzo, um, uh, and another ship managed to, to chase her um, just off the coast of Malta, to the south of, of Malta, and she was battered um, literally battered to a pulp, um, uh, and only when um, she was dismasted and and could not put up any more of a fight, um, she did surrender. Decre became uh, a prisoner of war. Um, uh, eventually, uh, went back to Paris, and Napoleon, who was still um, uh, first consul uh, back then, awarded him. Uh, with this with this sword, which has the inscription um, of, of this um, commemorating this battle of the Gulliam Tell um, on it. And we're very proud to say that it is now part, um, uh, well, hopefully, uh, she, 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 she's still in Paris. Um, she will be part of the National Collection um, wow. at the Maritime Museum. Congratulations. That's Charles very exciting. Charles is clapping uh, away yeah. on, on mute. But but go on, Charles, Alex. But what, what are your thoughts on this, this successful acquisition? I, I assume this is, uh, this is from uh, the draw auction. Yes, yes. This was yes. Um, the Belgian industrial uh, who, who was. That's right. And, uh, from Jean-Louis Nossier's, yeah, Nossier's yes. collection. It's it's a stunning sword. I've seen it um, advertised, yeah. and the it's got the, the, the workmanship. Yeah, beautiful. That's right. Beautiful. The workmanship is stunning. I mean, even without the history, which Liam just outlined, it is a, a work of art in, in that sense. So, congratulations. Listeners, there's another reason to go to Malta. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. That's apart from Emma Hamilton's bed. <laughs> sir, sir, I, I do genuinely congratulate you most sincerely. Indeed, indeed I do. Um, I mean, I, I haven't seen this sword, but I've seen other presentation swords, and they are indeed, you know, and indeed a presentation 
muskets, presentation pistols, yes. um, you know, the, the presentation of weapons, uh, you know, beautifully finished weapons to distinguish soldiers, um, even members of the rank and file sometimes. Um, you know, quite a common thing in the Napoleonic Wars, and and they're they're wonderful artifacts. So well done. I'm. Thank you. Can I can I broaden things out? I mean, I I do wish that we we got you on board for the podcast because um, the siege of Malta and indeed the Maltese uprising against the French is isn't something I I know very much about. Um, I mean, I know it happened. Um, and that's probably the, the the extent of my knowledge, he says. <laughs> and and so you know, I I, I think we, uh, you know, British Alex, you've missed a trick here. I, I have, but we're gonna tr- well, we're going to try and make up for lost time. And so Rachel Blackman Rogers is going to talk to to Liam and get us all back up to speed on what's been going on, the story of Malta in these critical years. I, I would I would genuinely be very very interested to hear. <laughs> about uh, irregular resistance and the reaction of the Maltese population. It's 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 a unique period where you've got crusader knights, you know, uh, you've got um, General Bonaparte, you've got you've got Dessay, you've got you've got Nelson, Emma Hamilton, Lord Hamilton, you've got Lord Keith getting extremely angry at Lord Nelson. Um, uh, you've got one of the band of brothers who becomes the first democratically elected Maltese president in history, uh, which tells you a little bit about about our identity and our atten- attachment to the sea, that our first president ele- uh, democratically elected, which was, uh, um, <laughs> well, a Royal Navy captain. Um, uh, so so <laughs> it, it's a very it's a it's a very colorful period, um, uh, which by way and and i'll end it here um we actually last year managed to buy the diary of one of the maltese leaders who um raised the first um uh, british ensign on the island um Mm. to signal that the maltese have new allies on the island Wow. wow yeah that's really cool amazing well liam thanks so much for coming on so you've had a a, 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 a strange day an exciting day um, yes yeah. very, i never i never expected <laughs> and, and that you off by talking to me for the first time i mean you, know, yes. you can't get a greater triumph than that surely <laughs> <laughs> thank you liam for meeting you and uh, look forward yeah Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank Cheers, you Liam. Okay. Bye, bye. Bye. Speak again soon. Bye. Okay. Well, there you go. Isn't that fantastic? So uh, that, that's that's Liam Gauchy, um who. Uh, that's, yeah, as I that's say, sword. Yeah, that sword <laughs> is something. Yeah. I, 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 when the catalog came out, uh, I remember even the number. I think it was lot eighty-eight uh, in 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 uh, Drew's catalog. It is one of the most beautiful swords. Excellent. Oh, well, and I'll I'll post a link to it in the show notes um, to the to the lot, as it were. Um, on, so, so so have a look in the show notes for that. Right. So there you go. That's that's a little bonus. Let's crack on with our next question. Um, and uh, again, Charles, choose a number between uh, one and six that isn't four. <laughs> um. Well, on 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 the on the basis that the, so this is the number which always comes up when I throw dice. How about number one? No, number one, right? Well, this is actually so. This was this was an email I got from Rachel Batman Rogers, who we were mentioning a lot in this episode. Um, 
uh, by the way, she's now lecturer in defence studies at King's College London, uh, having having been uh, having wrapped up her PhD. Anyway, she wrote, uh, "I just thought I'd pass along a question that someone sent me and isn't really for me." He asked if there was any truth in the rumour that British textile manufacturers made Napoleon's army's uniforms i haven't heard that anywhere but thought it might be an interesting question for charles who might know i'm pretty sure it would have been illegal in britain after 1793 as part of the traitorous correspondence act and france after march 1798 when they issued a decree to stop all british imports but i don't know if it followed the peace of amiens or was excluded from these acts i'm so sorry if i put you on the spot it's, it is slightly niche question but uh, does it ring any bells for either I can have a go. Um, what I think this refers to is the period after the Trion decrees of 1810. Um, basically, um, of course, Napoleon institutes the Continental Blockade. And, it, and it, it, within a few years, it becomes pretty clear that he's not going to be able to um, stop all the smuggling of British goods you know, arriving in arriving in you know, German ports, well, virtually everywhere, really. Um, and and so, basically, he decides, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. And he, by the Trianon decrees, and I, I do confess, I'm not very good on economic policy um, and so forth, and and. Alex Mikabaridze, you, you may well know more than me. Um, but basically, the Trianon decrees, um, it undercuts all the smugglers by allowing British goods into France. Um, and, and you know, which, which Napoleon, you know, the, the French can then make use of, or indeed re-export. Um, and so it is probably the case that that. There were French troops in 1812 wearing uniforms made of cloth that had originated in, in, in Britain. Um, the, this, this all may refer to something else, and I may be completely wrong, um, but that is what I think it is about. That sounds like a, a good answer to me. I don't know whether you want to add anything, Alex, to that. Um, no, yeah, I've seen references uh, or mentioned it in, in various studies, and one of the ways uh, I believe it was through, for example, American mer uh, uh, merchants, uh, even after you know, uh, even after the embargo was set in through the so-called neutral shipping that the textiles were making it. So it's not that the British ma uh, textile manufacturers were deliberately supplying the French army, but more very indirectly. Um, uh, the textile was ending up in, in, in on the continent and essentially um, uh, used for the uniforms in the Grand Armée. There we go. That is strange, isn't it? But that's an interesting curiosity there. Okay, very good. Thanks very much. Um, okay, now uh, let's let's have another question, uh, uh, Alex. Can I have a number between one and uh, six that isn't one or four? Three. Right, three. Okay, so three. Oh, well, this this is just some nice comments on the 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 book recommendations episodes that we've uh, we've been doing. Um, uh, Kiwi Gunner uh, commented, really enjoyed the episode. Book recommendations by Charles, spot on. Look forward to hearing what Alex M will suggest. Bernie did a sterling job. Well done, Bernie. That's great stuff. And uh, Cinnamon, uh, as in that the username Cinnamon. Um, said bernie read war and peace 
have some mentioned but many not, <laughs> many not yet <laughs> and waterloo like battle of the bulge is so bad it has to be watched i think that's true <laughs> i i have something called the rubicon of rubbishness where if something is irritating then you know it, it's it's kind of really annoying but sometimes things get so bad that they they suddenly become good or, or you, when you accept that you are not in for a good time and then you can start enjoying the badness if that makes sense and and that is possible. well if you take if you take braveheart um isn't that a ridley scott film <laughs> i mean i mean braveheart is so bad so ludicrous that's actually so, really good yeah, well, it's it's it becomes it becomes a comedy film. It, it, you know, I mean, I mean, I I I just fell about laughing all the time I was watching it. It was just so ludicrous. Don't um, you dare, Charles! Don't you dare! That's one of my favorite films. How dare you, sir? Well, the, the, I, I believe if the, well, the internet is telling me it, it was directed by. Mel Gibson. Who, Mel Gibson, of course. No, oh, yes, he was, was, of course. Sorry, it yeah. was Mel Gibson. Yeah, of course. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I, thought, yeah, I, thought, yeah, I thought you were suggesting about it. Yeah. Apologies, Mr. Scott. I do I do apologize <laughs> for saddling you with that dreadful monstrosity of a film. Oh, there's, um, there's a. I'm sure you'd been capable of it, though, sir. <laughs> there's another comment. Cinnamon also commented on the on the Alex episode. He said, "Good episode." And Alexander has many books. I have. If only budget was as big as my appetite for Napoleonic literature. Well. Cinnamon, I think that goes for a lot of us. <laughs> That's true. Okay, here's a follow-up question from me. What was the period of your lives, I suppose, when <clears throat> the, the the challenge of finding or or potentially affording, but but let's say well maybe challenging books about the period was at its hardest or, or most difficult for you? Um yeah, when when we think, I mean, I imagine, you know, most professors have a, and of course, Alex, we all know about the the collection of books that you've mentioned already, so you, you don't have this problem now, that's for sure. But but what 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 was the time when the search for books was that you felt it at its keenest? Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> So growing up in a war-torn, economically destroyed country without electricity, uh, uh, that is, yeah, uh, quite quite challenging to find books on Napoleon. And I, 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 I had maybe three or four books, literally three or four, written by these really uh, 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 capable and great uh, Soviet historians, you know, Eugène Tarlet. Uh, Albert uh, Manfred and, and and so on and and so when I got an offer to come to the United States to study Napoleon, I had all these dreams of what I would write about because you know I've I've grown kind of reading this small circle of books, and then I remember I arrived in uh, Tallahassee, Florida, the 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 capital of state of Florida, and the local kind of graduate students met me uh, and they said hey you know where do you want to go and the, my first choice was i want to go to the bookstore and they looked at me as a as a, as a, as a, as a weirdo <laughs> but they took me to a regular kind of american bookstore at the time it was uh, borders and that's that uh, book chains is, is now bankrupt and gone but borders was the one that they took me and alex i still remember that probably the deepest sense of disappointment I ever felt in my life when I go inside this bookstore 
with all these dreams of what I'm going to write and accomplish. And I go to this section and almost everything I've dreamt about has already been written. And here, Charles, you're going to chuckle. Your book was one of those books <laughs> that was there. <laughs> so I remember I bought Charles's book. What, I which bought book? Was it the Spanish uh, Army? Or? No, it was uh, the Peninsula War. Uh, I got Peninsula War. Uh, and I got da uh, David Chandler's uh, campaigns of Napoleon. And I remember sitting that night kind of reading and thinking, why am I here? Everything already <laughs> been done. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, there's always more to uncover and there's always more. Yeah, to that's, that's, the, that's the great thing about history. And, um, and I think um, now have having come a long way um there is always this sense that of discovery especially on one of the interviews i think i mentioned uh hellion press um with with um andrew bamford and rob griffin and others who are who are producing these remarkable studies um that that enrich our understanding of the past so i share the comment uh, the comment about you know, finding enough money to sustain this uh, this uh, book book fed uh, book addiction, because uh, there is always uh, some something interesting that takes you you know, kind of gets you. Yeah, I mean, I my my own experience. Um, the time I felt under greatest pressure and most desperate, um, I was I was uh, invited to write. History of nineteenth and twentieth Spain um, for for a, a, a multi-volume series uh, which came out with Blackwells and my volume is um, from Constitution to Civil War Spain eighteen oh eight to nineteen thirty nine and you know it, it it was a pretty substantial opportunity for me I mean you know it was going to be four hundred thousand words and and um, and I got a year's I got a year's leave, and and went out to Madrid, and and I remember arriving in the, in the Biblioteca Nacional in Madrid, which is one of my very favourite places in the entire world, um, and just being completely and totally overwhelmed, and <laughs> and, and just not knowing where to start, what to begin with, where to turn, um. You know, I, I I had this this vast ocean before me and and you know with consisting of millions and millions of square miles. And and you know I realized that you know if if I if I was there for 20 years, 30 years, I couldn't do it justice. Um so so in that sense, just sort of the superfluity was it was the problem and I mean, if, well, people people have to judge for themselves. Um, clearly, the the book that I produced um, is very selective in its approach. Um, so, for example, if I was looking at <coughs> social conditions in Spain in in the eighteen seventies at the start of the Restoration era, um, I couldn't read every book on Spain in the Restoration era. 
um, Spanish historians do tend to be very, very, um, what's the word, introvert. Uh, Spanish historians tend to write about Spanish history. And, and the way they do that is they produce endless provincial studies. Um, you know, uh, I don't know, disamortization in Soria or disamortization in Zaragoza or the you know, Frankist executions in Malaga and Frankist executions in Cartagena and so on. And you get the multiplicity of provincial studies. And many of them, I'm not knocking them, many of them are very, very good, very detailed, very careful pieces of work. Um, but I couldn't possibly read all of them. And so what I tried to do was I'd be, you know, select this, select that, select the other. And, and that's what you can do, really. And you have to recognise your limitations. You can only read so much. And you have to accept that the stuff you produce in the end isn't going to be perfect. And if you're trying to, if you, you think you can make it perfect, that is a road to hell. Um, but it, it just, just take, to take the other facet, you know, there's always things you don't know about. Well, as, you, as the three of you know, I mean, I've become more and more interested in the Ukrainian crisis and I've been doing a lot of reading, um, not so much on the actual war, but on the historical background and the, the whole problem of, of um, well, in two words, Stepan Bandera um, and, and, you know, Ukrainian collaboration with the Nazis and so forth. And I realised that one thing I need to find out about is how well Ukrainian soldiers fighting in the Red Army performed. Um, because this has been thrown at me, you know, you know, millions of millions of, of Ukrainian soldiers fought against Hitler. You know, they weren't they weren't collaborators, they fought against Hitler. And yeah, that's a good point. But I need to find out how they how well they thought. Were there more Ukrainian deserters than great Russian deserters? You know, did Ukrainians win a higher number of, of bravery awards? Um, were there specifically Ukrainian units? I mean, there's a whole raft of questions which I realise you know need to be grappled with. Um, and and thus far, plow through all the literature, though I though I though I am, um, I can't find the answers. So you go on forever. But what's interesting yeah, about it is that you're looking for the answers. You know, you're that, that that's that's what historians do. That there's something about the, the historian brain that that engages and starts digging in and starts starts looking, starts searching. That is very very interesting. Yeah. Let's move on to our next one. Uh, so we've got numbers two, five, and six left. Alex, why don't you take your pick? Five. Okay, five. Ah, this is. This is our another first. It's our first voicemail. Um, it's uh, great. So here's here's um, uh, Christian Horn, who's who's been in touch and has a question for you both. Hello, my questions for the Napoleonic use are: What was the diplomatic lay of the land in the Nordics around the year eighteen hundred, and what were the British and French diplomatic outlook on the Nordic countries? So thanks very much to Christian for, for that question. Now, Alex, there's a chapter on the Northern question in your book. So perhaps might 
uh, although I, I know Charles has, has been very interested in this as well. So, but but Alex, what 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 would you say about yeah the diplomatic lay of the land in the Nordics in this period? No, I mean, uh, um, especially uh, the period that we are right now discussing, 1800-1801, the Baltic play a crucial role, and it it has done so, you know, for the past 200 plus years. Um, If we look at the uh, rapidly changing diplomatic situation at the start of the century, you know, Baltic went from a Swedish dominated to an area where Russia is increasingly projecting its power. The, the Great Northern War was fought in, in the northern waters, and then we've seen the dramatic changes that it produced. And of course, in our era, we see increasingly uh, the projection of the great power politics in the Baltics. So this is from the League of Armed Neutrality, which Russia pushed for, to the first continental system, which we'll be discussing, right, I think, in, in the next few episodes which was um, an attempt to again to to restructure the northern northern european economic uh, political reality uh, to reflect the the interests of the great powers i mean there's so much we can talk about it but i I do want to remind that um, think about the the issue of timber there are wonderful studies on the importance of the scandinavian timber for for the royal navy uh, uh, there is plenty of studies on the importance of the Baltic trade for the Russian economy. If, if it's it's you know I've I've done my own studies on kind of on the exports and of course as as important as the Black Sea ports are, the Black Sea at this time is still a, is a closed sea. Uh, but the ba- Baltic Sea is the crucial um, out, uh, um, anthropo for for uh, for Russia and especially vis-a-vis the trade with Britain. So. Scandinavia is a crucial, crucial element in the story. And I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to, in my own book, to kind of emphasize in a separate section the relevance of this, because in, in oftentimes we forget um, that Sweden, Denmark, Norway had a, a crucial role uh, in, in the events of Napoleonic era. Yeah, and we will be following that through um, in the Napoleonic Quarterly, absolutely. In fact, coming up in episode 34, we should have a segment on that and, and, and getting going. But but the, the can question I, of... Can I just come in on that? Um, yeah, of, of course, Charles, yeah. Um, well, I mean, Scandinavia is fascinating. You actually have ski troops. Um, the, 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 the Norwegians have ski troops. But I thought the, didn't the British invent skiing in the Alps in about 1900? Now, now, he does. That's Alex being Ridley Scott again. Fascinating, fascinating theatre of war. I'd love to know more about the, the Finnish war against Russia in 1808, 1809, or it's a Swedish war against Russia, or the Russian war against Sweden, but it's fought in Finland, and um, there's a popular insurrection, and and the Russians, frankly, have quite a difficult time of it. Um, And there are, in fact, um, some very, very, very good Scandinavian historians, some of whom, mercifully, well, they all speak English, um, they, they all speak English incredibly well, um, but some of them mercifully write in English. And there are various collections of essays and things. Um, there's a, a Norwegian chap called 
Morten Otto Nordhausen and a Danish chap called Rasmus Glenvoy. And uh, now, uh, who's the chap who's written about Gustav IV? Um, there's, there's a pretty good book on Swedish foreign policy under Gustav Adolf IV. Um, so there, there, there's some really, really good stuff um, which you can get into. Um, and and you know, the, the chaps concerned are very personable and, you know, and nice people. I've had the pleasure of, of meeting um, all three of the gentlemen I'm, th- I'm, I'm thinking about. Um, Christy Jorgensen, he's, he's a Swedish chap. Yeah, um, I think Thomas uh, Munch Peterson. I think he's a Danish historian who wrote really good, uh, interesting study on post Tilsit um, uh, period, Copenhagen bombardment, and he's Dan- 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 mm-hmm. he's, he's he's British, but of Danish descent. Of descent, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. Again, a very very fine scholar in a brilliant book on Copenhagen. Um, so it's it, it's possible to get into these topics. Um, but you have to be willing to step away from the beaten track. You have to be willing to accept that the history of Napoleonic Europe is not just Napoleon. And, and you know, you, you cannot tell a story of Napoleonic Europe by means of, you know, reciting what Napoleon did and what Napoleon did next. Well, I just think it's fascinating that you've got, I mean, clearly the, the dynamics and, and the whole Bernadotte thing, of course, is is um, remarkable and um, interesting in, in, in its own right. But um, I suppose what Christian was, was asking about is before we get on to the 1808 stuff um, and, and sort of around that period, and I suppose in, in 1800 and 1801, yeah, we're looking at the League of Armed Neutrality and everything that comes along with that. But and, and I, I think I think what, what you're saying is that when it comes to French and British attitudes, maybe bef- before the turn of the century, um, it, it was predominantly about, um, you know, giving and taking, basically, trade. Uh, and that th- that was the main preoccupation, uh, certainly for the British. Is, is that about right? No, no, I wouldn't say. I mean, trade is an important element, but um, but even in the diplomatic and political uh, considerations, uh, this is the crucial region. Um, I mean, again, think about if if we just simply discuss timber. Timber is not just a commercial commodity that you need to buy and sell. It's it's a strategic commodity that <laughs> that underpins the wooden walls of Britannia. Um, so I think uh, no, to me. The, di- the dynamic be- of, of relationship between uh, Denmark, Norway, that is kind of caught uh, up, up to 1807, 1808, caught between choosing, you know, the lesser of the evils in many respects, right? Uh, who do you want to be stomped at, by the elephant or by the whale? And we've seen that in 1807, 1801 and 1807, Danes get stomped by the whale twice in brutal fashion, right? Which is why they, they go and support Napoleon. Uh, oh, 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 so... And of course, the Sweden's uh, des- you know, the, the, the fortunes from being a, a, a really powerful regional uh, polity to, to being um, essentially the, the vic- victim of the Russian imperial expansion in 1808-1809. So I think these are complex issues that, I, as Charles and I have been arguing, are interconnected with the bigger picture uh, and need to be under- need to be studied need to be analyzed in order to get a more complex 
view of the issue. I'm perfectly, you know, kind of to to echo what Charles was saying. I think it's perfectly fine in that sense if you if, to to look at history through Napoleon's eye. I just find it intellectually lazy, <laughs> and I think I, I find that if you broaden your horizon and consult different points of view, different aspects that it will it's it's a much more rewarding experience and gives you a better grasp of the complexity that history truly is great thank you that's really good okay we've got a couple left one is one is fairly short the other the other is um is something else entirely but um so, so charles two or six are the numbers left well i very rarely get to throw a six so i'll, so I'll go to six <laughs> I'm glad you chose a six, because if you'd chosen a two, I would have pretended you'd chosen a six and swapped them around anyway. So, okay. Okay, this is... Uh, this it must is be question. good. It must yeah. be very good. <laughs> well, actually, it's just a quick little comment from a chap called Mike Jenks, um, spelt J-O-E-N-K-S. So I hope I've said that right. Um, commenting on the Jonathan North's interview on Nelson's war crime, as we called it. This was about the, uh, you know... Uh, deal that went awry and we were asking is this was this the done thing or not um uh, so mike's comment is straightforward applying 21st century moral values to actions in 1799 is simply ridiculous which i like i like that as a pithy uh comment and absolutely a fair a, a fair comment to make so moral relativism um uh i think we sort of when we addressed this it was pretty much where we ended up that it was i don't know though i still feel a bit strange about it, it again it, the theme of ridley scott is coming up again how do you how do you ap approach these issues when your audience is a 21st century audience you know can i go first yeah yeah, absolutely, Charles. And uh, having um, said that question, I think <laughs> I want to answer it myself. But uh, you go ahead. This is an issue I come across a lot on Twitter. Um, I, I, I'm plugged into all sorts of people on Twitter, and 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 I follow it avidly. And and there's a big group of people who are absolutely fascinated by the American Civil War, and some of them one or two Ameri uh, Americans, but also uh, several British guys, um, very much in favour of the cause of the South. Um, Idolise Bobby Lee and, um, you know, believe that the South was invaded and, and so on and so forth. And the line you get over and over again, when... You say, look, basically the South was a political disaster and and still more so an utterly immoral cause. You know, it, everything revolved around the defence of slavery. And they'll, 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 they'll challenge that, but they'll say, even if it is about defence of slavery, the past is another country. They do things differently there. It is a very, very difficult issue. If you take my ancestors, my, my, my Esdale ancestors, um, the Esdales were merchant bankers. Um, my great, 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 great grandfather was Lord Mayor of London. He was a scion of this great merchant banker family. And to be frank, 
they made a lot of their money from plantations in, to be precise, St. Kitts. And there are ladies and gentlemen in the United States who bear my very rare surname. And they are members of the Afro-American community. And they are, beyond doubt, descendants of people who were slaves of ours. My ancestors were doing things that many, many other people of their class, almost everybody of their class, did. There is nothing, nothing that will persuade me that it was right. And there were growing numbers of people, even in the 18th century, who were convinced that it was wrong. And certainly by the 1860s, even many people in the South realised that it was actually morally wrong. The issues were how on earth you got rid of it. So I, th I, th I think that the, the, the issue is hugely problematic. Um, and it's one that I struggle with. But with regards to the slave trade, you know, I've, I've, I've always said this to my children, the only difference between us and everybody, and I mean everybody that we see around us in England, is that we know what our connection was to the slave trade. Because the slave trade is so pervasive and its ramifications stretch so, you know, so deeply down into society that nobody is free of the taint. Everybody was caught up in it to some extent or other. Even if it was only growing potatoes that could be loaded on board slaving ships as food for the slaves. You know, it, 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 the thing goes down as deep as that. So there, there's some very, very difficult issues there. Um, and I struggle. As a historian, I confess that I struggle. I think the way I approach this is, yes, um, kind of moral relativism is a, is a complex phenomenon and we can certainly discuss its its value, its its role, its place. But one for me, the beginning, I think the, the starting point to all of this is what were the contemporaries looking at it, how they were judging these events, these individuals. And we know that in the case of Nelson in Naples, the contemporaries were pissed off too, that they were castigating him too. If nothing else, uh, Foot, who um, negotiated the 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 surrender um, uh, of, of the French Republicans uh, later on wrote a, a, a lengthy vindication in which he disparaged Nelson. Uh, of course, Fox, I think it was who later in the parliament uh, also spoke highly uh, scathingly of, of what happened in, in, in Nelson uh, in, in Naples. And and um, the book, in, in, of course, Jonathan North, the historian, um, 
um, and, and a um, great historian, I must say, uh, you know, in his own book on Nelson at Naples shows the extent to which contemporaries debated this. Um, so, I, in, in many respects, I share Nelson's biographers, uh, Suthi's um, thing, that this was a deplorable transaction, no matter how you look at whether from a ni- uh, 19th century or from the 21st. Well, I would say that a big theme of this discussion today, we've been talking about all sorts of different topics, but um, the study of history being the solution to most ills um seems to be a potential unifying thread there we go we've been through all sorts we've had ridley scott's historian bashing slave owning relatives in st kitts and and a sword um being uh, being purchased today that was pretty that was pretty good from liam all sorts to discuss our our final little segment or point to, to to talk through is is some just nice words really that some people have said although there was actually a and there was one i missed from greg spotify six on episode 31 he said love the show so far although i must ask why no french scholars well let me just address that one it's mostly because i think oh they're, they're french they just won't they won't you know they just won't speak english so there's no point asking i i, I want to avoid having to uh um, adopt the shifty hangdog look, as P.G. Woodhouse put it, of an Englishman about to attempt to speak French. Um, uh, but but uh, I think it's a good point, Greg. We ought to try to get someone from France on the, on the podcast, and so I shall consult with Charles and Alex and see who we can get. I have tried one or two, I ought to say, but haven't been successful so far, but we'll keep chipping away. Um, hey. Alex, try in, in in my uh, discussion with Bernie, um, in in terms of book recommendation, I actually um, kind of uh, mentioned and discussed quite a quite a few new publications by the French historians, with that hope that the listeners will be, um, you know, especially those who are proficient in, in uh, with French, will be interested in looking at, at the work of this new generation of French historians who are uh, engaging history in a new way, trying to reassess, reevaluate uh, history in an exciting ways. Uh, uh, but as you mentioned, Alex, I think the biggest issue, both on, on, on both sides, I think, is the linguistic in the sense that um, very few, for example, people um, that I know um, um, who, uh, who are engaging French, French, French sources um, uh, because again, uh, the the uh, the issues of language, and and I, I, I know that many of my French colleagues, with whom I, I mean, whom I've seen this summer, have a uh, uh, difficulty expressing themselves in English. So I think there's that 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 that's an issue that is is a difficult to overcome unless there is a mutual uh, this commitment <laughs> um, to to bridge the gap. Absolutely. Very good. Okay. To finish, let's just have a few nice words. Lots of people say nice things about the podcast and it's always appreciated. Um, here's, here's just a few of them, um, from hard Hill who says I'm halfway through season two and enjoying it greatly. Many thanks. That's marvelous on Apple podcasts. Dorset Dick, uh, says absolutely superb. I'm hooked, resurrected my love of this period. That's great. Tremendous. Uh, <laughs> uh, which is really good and then uh, 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 somebody or I think also on Apple Podcasts uh, um, uh, T-Dog T-Dog lol all 
<laughs> says fantastic pod brilliant podcast extremely well made with great with great presenter and guests on a very interesting topic please keep coming with episodes yes absolutely we shall do thank you very much t-dog t-dog lol uh that's all good <laughs> very good and then finally some praise from somebody who we we know and like and admire zach white who tweeted, um, I know you shouldn't advertise competing products, but the Napoleonic Quarterly is an extremely well-planned and meticulously produced podcast featuring ideally placed guests, great interviews, and a winning format. I'm in awe of Alex's powers of organization, which is very, very kind. Well, um, is that there's no, there's, I don't think it's a competing product at all um, because, uh, you know, um, his his podcast is, is such a, a good example of what you can do by talking to so many interesting people. Um, um, ab about the period so absolutely go and go and check that out i think yeah, I, I i do recommend it um yeah because not... you, you've you've both been on 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 his podcast yeah i mean and that's great i've 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 known zach i've known zach ever since he was i think a second year undergraduate student at the university of southampton and i remember him producing for one of the wellington congresses um, the news from Waterloo. He did. He did a sort of fake BBC Newsnight special on 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 the Battle of Waterloo, and he organised it with a group of, of fellow undergraduates, and it was breathtakingly good. And Rory Muir and that, my my very very good and dear friend Rory Muir was was at the Congress with me, and we we both absolutely agreed that Zach was a young man who deserved encouragement, deserved support, um, and who really, really potentially had a great future as a historian. And I'm delighted to say that after many travails, he has a um, postdoctoral research fellowship at the University of Portsmouth, um, at this current moment, he he is he is he is making his way round round the battlefield of Victoria, um, uh, armed armed with 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 the the relevant chapter of my forthcoming battles and battlefields and into the war. Um, actually, I, I hope at this hour he isn't make, still making his way round because that's suggesting a lot. But, but um, no, I mean Zach is a, Zach is a splendid splendid historian um he, he really does have a great future and and his podcast is is excellent um not least because it, it's it's very different to ours i mean he um takes a series of topics um and he devotes you know an episode to a particular topic he doesn't try to um and you know, doesn't try to follow a chronological approach, a more thematic approach, is different. Um, but it is, I mean, I'd like to hope that our approach is valid, um, but let, let's assume it's valid. Well, his approach is equally valid. And, and uh, you know, he's, he, he has been complimentary to us, <laughs> but he is actually complimentary as well oh nice absolutely absolutely he is so that's that's the napoleonic wars podcast um which which zach white isn't uh, it called hosts. the napoleonicist not anymore charles you've got to keep up he oh, changed oh, the name 
Oh, right. Okay. But Zach, do forgive me if you're hearing this. Shocking. <laughs> oh, well, um, it's it's all really good stuff from from Zach. Absolutely. And I, I completely uh, agree with, with Charles and every, everything he said about Zach. Uh, what a remarkable fellow he is. And I'm, I'm hopeful that he will be able to cross the, uh, uh, the pond and, and come uh, to the United States uh, for a conference. And I especially admire him for uh, leading the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War charity that, that takes care of the, um, the graves and the cemeteries of the war dead. I mean, it's such a uh, really worthwhile undertaking. Um, so, Zach, have fun at Vittoria and uh, hope to see you in Louisiana. That's brilliant. And for anybody who hasn't heard it, um, we did a, it was a while back, wasn't it? But it was me, Zach, and Everett Rummage from the Age of Napoleon podcast. Um, I think if you go, I think that you could, that's listenable to on Everett's feed at the Age of Napoleon. I think it's episode 76 by memory. Uh, and that sort of was a good discussion of the different approaches that we take and how, yeah, you know, the idea is we're all, all coming at coming at it with slightly different approaches but yeah complimentary uh, absolutely um so that's brilliant um that's that's a nice way to finish isn't it this this has been the third of our napoleonic cues uh episodes um and uh, there'll be more in due course um so yeah if if you've got a question or a comment about the period send us an email napoleonicquarterly at gmail.com or you can engage us uh, on twitter slash x at napoleonic underscore q or you can leave comments on spotify you can uh, say something about us on a on our facebook page etc etc all sorts of different ways um but and of course bonus points for anybody who sends a voicemail because they're great um anyway we're going to be back now what's the plan so we've got um our response our reaction episode to the napoleon movie hopefully that will come out uh around the end of the month um or, or thereabouts then uh well, then what, what's going to be next i think the plan after that will be um episode 33 kicking off season five so we've already recorded it as it happens uh, uh, and so that's in the the editing stage that covers the first three months of 1800 and then hopefully we might have something from liam who who you heard earlier uh, in this episode talking to rachel blackman rogers there could be a bonus episode there and then just one last thing to mention is that so episode 34 of course includes a, a fairly big napoleonic battle and um i had an interesting strategy here um you know getting that into 10 segments 10 minutes rather is always going to be hard so i basically gave david holland's permission to just go for it and take as long as he liked <laughs> it worked brilliantly the result is not one because of course you have hochstadt as well as marengo That's so there's, right. you've got two whopper length bonus episodes where he's taking us through it in great detail and then he was so exhausted and tired at the end of it that i was able to get him to do it in 10 minutes for the the episode (laughs) thank you david (laughs) it was really it's really really good stuff and look here listeners won't be able to see it but i'm i'm holding up i've still got it open here this is this is charles's old copy of the, the, this fantastic <laughs> uh, book by Esposito, the, the military history, history and atlas of the Napoleonic Wars, that came in very handy indeed. Anyway, so that's all coming up, still to come on the Napoleonic Quarterly over the next month, month or two. We're getting this pipeline of episodes going. It's all good, hopefully. So pl- plenty to enjoy. But for now, 
I think it's time to say goodbye from from me and uh, thanks very much, Alex and Charles. Splenyat Vol Shalen Thank you so much.